Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we're also fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers. These good folks practice on the ground in jurisdictions around the globe, working daily to help their clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're chatting with ELA members in Vermont and New York City. Joining us today on the program are Lee Cole, shareholder and director and chair of the education practice at Dinsey, as well as Joanna Silver, a member at Bond, Shenick and King. Today, Lee and Joanna are going to share with us an update on immigration issues facing higher education institutions. Lee and Joanna, welcome to the program. How are you both today? Hey, Tara. Doing fine, and we're happy to be here to talk about our favorite subject, immigration for higher education. Sounds great. So let's get into it. And Joanna, maybe we'll start with you. We know that universities and colleges have faced challenges in hiring faculty members from other countries and dealing with immigration issues because of restrictions imposed by the Trump administration. And then, of course, COVID hit, which made things even more difficult for visa processing and international travel. But as the pandemic has evolved and the Biden administration is taking a slightly different approach to immigration, where do things stand now? So thank you, Tara. I'm glad to be here today. And yes, I mean, it's no secret that immigration has already been a very challenging issue for colleges and universities over the last several years. And then, of course, COVID entered the picture almost exactly a year ago to the day. And if you recall back then, international travel and travel in general was basically brought to a screeching halt. And everybody was told to stay put, given the circumstances with the pandemic. I myself had just returned from Israel, and a week later, you couldn't go anywhere in the world. It was amazing to me that I went and came as easily as I did. So almost instantaneously, former President Trump issued presidential proclamations that prohibited entry for individuals traveling from China, Iran, the Shenzhen area in Europe, which are basically the European Union countries, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. Since then, there have been two other presidential proclamations put in place by President Biden, basically in response to new variants that have cropped up in Brazil and South Africa. And these presidential proclamations, they're in effect until they are terminated by the president. And the basis of these, as a result of these presidential proclamations, individuals are now permitted to enter the United States if they've been present in one of the affected countries in the previous 14 days prior to seeking entry into the United States. And it's important to note that it's not necessarily people from the affected countries. It's anybody who has been in those countries over the 14 days prior to seeking entry to the United States. We have been faced with a possibility of not being able to travel back. Let's say if you're in the United Kingdom and you have an employee that you'd like to bring from the United Kingdom into the United States, One option for getting that employee here is for them to go essentially quarantine in a non-affected country for 14 days, and then on the 15th day, travel to the United States. So we have seen instances where somebody might travel to, let's say, Argentina, 
and stay there for 14 days, and then on the 15th day, come into the United States. So that's still in effect. There are exemptions. Those COVID restrictions do not pertain to United States citizens, lawful permanent residents. There's also a mechanism in place called a national interest exception. There's an automatic availability to international students, and others are granted on a case-by-case basis at the various U.S. consulates and embassies around the world. So that has been an option in order to get international faculty members who would otherwise be subject to the COVID travel ban into the United States on time in order to teach or work at the college or university. The one final travel restriction that we're dealing with with respect to COVID is also pertaining to land border crossings between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. So travel through any of the land ports, the ferry terminals, or by train, you can only travel between the United States and Canada and the United States and Mexico for essential travel. And there's a definition for that, and it basically covers things that you would ordinarily at this point come to know as essential travel, medical treatment, work, attendance at an educational institution. This is currently in effect until March 21st, and it's going to probably be extended beyond then. So due to the pandemic, obviously, we still have some COVID-related travel restrictions that we're dealing with on a daily basis, which has made it somewhat difficult to onboard international faculty members. Sounds great. And Lee, what about you? Anything to add on this issue? Well, yeah, Joanna did a great job with an overview of the COVID-related restrictions, but we still have the general visa and travel restrictions that had been in place prior to COVID that the Trump administration imposed. And some of those have already been removed or withdrawn by the Biden administration, but not all of them. So one of the earliest travel bans that we've been dealing with for years now was referred to as the Muslim ban. And that was really a discriminatory ban aimed at certain geographical areas. And that has been withdrawn by the Biden administration. That was the first day on the job item for him, which was really gratifying because a discriminatory ban had always been really distasteful for a lot of people and particularly people in higher education. But we still have other types of bans that are out there. It took a few weeks, but just last week, the Biden administration removed the immigrant visa ban. And that was really affecting a lot of people, whether it was an employment-based situation or a family-based situation where someone abroad was applying for a green card either to come here to work or to come and join their family. And all immigrant visa processing was held up because of this particular proclamation. And that the Biden administration lifted last week. Unfortunately, that still leaves us with some visa bans that are affecting higher education in particular. And that has to do with non-immigrant visa bans, so temporary visas such as H-1B, which is very commonly used on campus and also affects J-1 and L-1 visas, which are more used in the corporate context. And these visa bans, we're hopeful that they expire according to their terms on March 31st, and we're hopeful that they will not be renewed. But there has been some talk in the media, some, some press reports that perhaps the president is feeling that he's questioning whether to remove those visa bans. And immigration practitioners are, are of two minds about this. I'm a little cautious about it. I'm concerned that those visa bans may continue given the Biden administration's very pro-worker stance. But a lot of practitioners that I hold in high regard are very confident that that visa ban will expire according to its terms on March 31st. So that is coming right up now. There's also the possibility that those visa types could be treated differently rather than lumped together. 
And it's also possible that instead of removing those visa bans, what they could do would be to offer some more exceptions. And we're just spitballing here. This is not a proposal that's on the table. But when you talk with folks who represent higher education and you say, well, you know, what do you think about the H-1B visa ban being lifted? It seems like worst case scenario, we would at least have an academic exception or some sort of a, you know, either you're not accepted, but you could apply and, and say that we need to come and start for the new academic year as a faculty member. But we really don't know what to expect. So let's just say the best case scenario, what we're hoping for, fingers crossed, is that that visa ban is going to expire on March 31st. And that would be wonderful. There are exceptions to all the visa bans, including this one. So, you know, each case has to be considered as a case by case basis, as Joanna said. But the really the overview that is important to know is that if someone is going to be a new employee coming from abroad, this is a more challenging situation than someone who's already in the United States and would be able to change status or extend status rather than have to get a new status coming from abroad. And definitely presents a lot of uncertainty, that's for sure. With the travel restrictions and visa bans that are currently in place, can you give us a sense of what it's like applying for a visa stamp at a consular post at this point? I mean, on the range of experiences from root canal to vacation in tropical paradise, what's that experience like? I would say I have heard very few vacation in tropical paradise experiences. I think basically a a favorite piece of advice that I tell my clients is pack your patients. In addition to your passport and everything else, make sure that you pack your patients. We're still dealing with tremendous backlogs at the embassies and consulates around the world. One, due to the slow processing times that occurred under the Trump administration in general, and now adding COVID on top of that, that has created more backlogs. There's also, in some areas, some very limited in-person operations at the embassies and consulates. So priorities are often given to United States citizens who have priority with respect to getting the documents they need in order to return to the United States. So, and in addition to that, you're dealing in the middle of a pandemic. So there's all sorts of new requirements that you're going to have to undergo, including COVID testing and other elements that are necessary to do before you get your visa, hop on a plane and arrive in the United States. So it's important for everybody to know it's not instantaneous. It definitely varies from consulate to consulate. And under the circumstances, I think everybody's just doing the best that they can. But people should be aware that it's definitely, I would say, not exactly an easy process these days. Lee, what are your thoughts on this and how will the change of administration affect this issue? Well, it's hard to predict because we're not really sure exactly how the Biden administration's priorities are going to come into play here. I mean, we all are expecting that we're having a friendlier environment now for immigration generally and welcoming international people and international workers into the United States. But we're also having somewhat of a different approach to the COVID pandemic, where the Biden administration is taking a more aggressive approach, a more protective approach than what we experienced before. So to some extent, that more protection level for the COVID issues could even out any sort of improvement in the immigration situation that we would hope for. So that makes it hard to predict and hard to anticipate what's going to happen. But we know that these delays are sort of built into the system now because what happened, well, during the pandemic, international consular posts, U.S. consular posts had to shut down their in-person operations, just like so many businesses and services had to shut down. 
And so now that's why they have these long backlogs. And how do you resolve those backlogs? You can't just open the pipe and have everybody swamp the door, you know, swamp the doors of the consular post. So there are going to be some staffing decisions to be made. It's going to depend, as it does now, on in-country conditions wherever the consular posts are located. Some consular posts are going to have an easier time clearing their backlogs than others. But there's a lot of things administratively that can be done in the State Department if the State Department wants to prioritize clearing those backlogs and getting back to normal visa processing. And the types of things I'm thinking of are allocating staff to prioritize those services, expanding hours of availability. They could waive interviews so that people don't actually have to come into the consular post. The Trump administration was more aggressive about requiring interviews for almost everything, non-immigrant visa applications, visitor visa applications, green card applications once you were here in the United States. And you know they could roll back some of those requirements. They could also, there's some idea that perhaps they should also return to something that has not been done in many, many years, which is that you could renew a visa without traveling, renew your visa domestically through the State Department here rather than getting a visa stamp at a consular post abroad. So with this range of options on the table, it's really hard to understand you know, what's going to happen or anticipate. And I think the Biden administration is probably sorting through all of this right now as we speak. But at this point, we know that everyone has to expect delays, just as Joanna said, and it's not going to change anytime soon. And so we continue to advise if you can avoid travel outside the United States at this point, that's the best thing to do. So it's my understanding that schools depend on H-1B visas to hire faculty from around the world. And if there are delays with H-1B visas, that can certainly cause delays onboarding new faculty in time for the academic term. With all of these ongoing difficulties with international travel and visa processing, in your experience, are colleges and universities having trouble now securing H-1B visas for faculty and staff in other countries? And if they are, are H-1B visas still a good option for faculty? Lee, what are your thoughts on that? Well, overall, H-1Bs still are a good option for faculty. So that's, that's the starting point. And the reason for that is that it's still the immigration service under Homeland Security is still processing H-1B approvals, just as they have before. It's become more expensive because uh, just last year, the fee, the government filing fee for premium processing had a substantial hike up to $2,500. So it costs more, but the immigration service is funded by fees. And so there's at least a hope that if you pay more in a fee, it helps the agency keep going and keep processing cases even under difficult situation like a, a pandemic. So we're still getting H-1B approvals. The really the difficulty comes in if the person is abroad and needs to get a visa stamp in their passport to travel to the United States and be admitted in H-1B status. If they're already here and they don't need to do that, they can either extend their status with their same employer or change employers and get a new H-1B approval for the new employer. Or they could change status from another category, such as F1 international student. If a student's working as opposed after graduation with OPT, they can still change status to H1B. So those are all good options. And as it turns out, you know, the colleges and universities have been able to continue to use H1Bs. Many people qualify under these easier routes, not having to go abroad and get a, a visa stamp. And sometimes people are being hired or recruited. And they have the idea that they have to travel abroad to get a visa stamp for one reason or another. And when you analyze their case, you can say, no, you actually don't. And so, again, it's a case-by-case analysis, but still, we're having plenty of success with with H-1Bs. One thing we are hoping is 
under the Trump administration, the culture of no came into effect in a lot of different ways. That's how immigration practitioners refer to the fact that when you file an application, the government's going to try to find a way to say no and either ask you really hard questions or deny it if they can justify doing that. And we're hopeful that that climate, that culture of no will change quite promptly. First off, because the Biden administration is more welcoming to immigration generally, but also, for example, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Ali Mayorkas, he used to run USCIS and he did a very good job in that position, in my own opinion. And, you know, he's the type of person who would be able to prioritize that for the agency and make sure that those things go smoothly and that processing continues effectively and that the culture of no is not a factor. So I think we're hopeful in that. And there's really no reason for colleges and universities to avoid looking at candidates who would need an H-1B at this point. It's really the details that become difficult, but to, to overlook those candidates is certainly not what we're advising now. Now, near the end of the Trump administration, there were developments with the definition of specialty occupations and prevailing wages. Joanna, where do things stand on this issue? So, yeah, the issues that are mentioned there towards the end of, I think it was October 2020, there were a series of regulations that came out from the Department of Homeland Security, as well as the Department of Labor. The Department of Homeland Security regulations aim to change the criteria for determining which occupations are specialty occupations under the H-1B visa regulations. And anybody who practices in this area knows that proving that an occupation is a specialty occupation is the core analysis that's done during the H-1B visa process. And for myself, I've been practicing in this area about 25 years doing petitions for college professors mainly, and rarely did I get a request for evidence or more information asking me to prove that an assistant professor of film at a college is a specialty occupation. But I did receive, as I'm sure many other people did around the country, plentiful and often unwarranted requests for evidence from the Trump administration. So it was very disconcerting to see these regulations because it had already become quite a challenge in some circumstances to prove that a job qualified as a specialty occupation. And then here, they were looking to drastically change the definition and the criteria, which would have made it much more difficult for employers to sponsor individuals for H-1B visa status. So thankfully, the issue was litigated and the regulations were struck down. And in terms of the Biden administration, we have not heard anything from them on this aspect of the H-1B visa process yet. So to be determined to see whether or not he agrees with the regulations that were proposed by the Trump administration, or if they're just going to walk away from this concept altogether and leave the regulations intact as they've been for the last couple of decades. Obviously, we're hoping for the latter so people would be able to use this category and actually feel confident, again, that it's the right category and the right visa option to be used for professionals that they're looking to onboard from other countries around the world. Regarding the prevailing wage issue, this is a little bit different, and we do have to face this issue, we think, at this point down the road. Back in October 2020, the Department of Labor issued regulations causing the immediate increase of prevailing wages for jobs to rise by 40 to 50%. So essentially, as part of the H-1B visa process, employers have to prove that they're paying the individual at a minimum what the prevailing wage is for the job. So I saw this effect, especially postdocs, where they would traditionally offer postdocs, let's say, $50,000 a year, and the prevailing wage 
was $48,000 a year, we knew we were in a good position and could onboard that postdoc, file a labor condition application, and bring them on at that wage. However, with the prevailing wage increases, with an increase of 50%, next thing you knew, you were seeing salaries that the colleges just weren't prepared to be paying postdocs and then having to rectify salaries for individuals on campus who are already making significantly less than that individual would make if they were brought on at the new prevailing wages. And this was an instant, this was not out for comment. This occurred, the regulation came out and went into effect. So employers really had to pivot and use the new prevailing wage data. So, but thankfully there was litigation. And for now, the prior prevailing wages have been restored, which is the good news. So since about, I think, late fall, employers have been able to use the data from the Department of Labor that was not increased by 40 to 50%. But there has been some litigation, and under that litigation, there are new prevailing wages that are supposed to take effect on July 1 of this year. So it's still down the horizon, and we're not sure, again, what the Biden administration is going to do, if they're going to address this and walk it back, or if it's going to take effect. So there's still a lot of if in the future. So for the time being, We've had to advise clients to rely heavily on independent wage surveys to help support the wages that they're offering H-1B visa employees. And I personally represent a number of institutions that have collective bargaining agreements that govern the salaries that are offered to their faculty members, which is great because that would be the source for your prevailing wage as opposed to using the Department of Labor data. So, you know, to be determined with respect to these new regulations. And one more thing that I do want to mention is obviously people have been working remotely for the past year. People may continue to work remotely for the foreseeable future until they're able to get a vaccine or travel back to the United States or whatever the situation is. So it is important that when you're doing a prevailing wage, if the person is working at some other location in the United States, not on your campus, It is important to use the prevailing wage for where the individual is actually doing the physical work. So if you're a professor in NYU who's living in Nebraska for the last year, you've got to make sure to use the Nebraska prevailing wage on your labor condition application when that's filed with the U.S. Department of Labor. That's a great point. Now, with the pandemic continuing and challenges for visa processing and travel, many institutions still have staff working remotely, as you just discussed. And in some cases, they're unfortunately stuck outside the United States until visa processing and travel restrictions improve. So as the pandemic continues into its second year, are there compliance issues that employers need to be concerned about for their employees who remain outside the United States? You know, it's important to remember that when people, I get this question all the time, when you've got employees who are working outside United States, it's important to remember that compliance matters. One of the biggest compliance matters that employers deal with on a day-to-day basis is the Form I-9 employment verification procedures, which is essentially a process where you check the individual's identity and their employment authorization to make sure they're authorized to work in the United States. The good news is if your employee is not working in the United States, you don't have to go through this process with them. You only have to go through this process when they're working in the United States. So that's one compliance issue that you can put aside for employees who are working outside the United States. However, because of the fact that everybody has been scattered in the United States where they're working, 
the I-9 verification process in general, the compliance aspects to that have changed dramatically over the last year. So before there was COVID, employers, when they brought a new employee on, would have to review the individual's original documents, whether it be a passport or a driver's license and a social security card or whatever documents are presented to prove their identity and that they're authorized to work in the United States. They would have to provide original documentation and those documents would have to be reviewed and verified in person by another human being in order to confirm that they're authorized to work. But since last March, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement has had flexibility with respect to this process and have allowed employers to remotely inspect the documents on a temporary basis. And currently, this policy is in effect until the end of March. Also, March 31st seems to be D-Day for a lot of these policies. So we're hoping it'll be extended because we still are very much in a culture where people are working remotely. But until we actually have word of that happening, you know, I think employers have to operate in the direction that this policy, it may not be coming to an end this month, but it could be coming to an end shortly. So employers really need to start focusing on compliance efforts as their employees return to the work site or when the flexibility policy actually ends. So we do have to get back in the habit of inspecting original documents, noting on the Form I-9 that the original documents have been reviewed and inspected by a human in person and updating those forms I-9 that were prepared remotely and documents that were reviewed remotely to indicate that you have since then completed the process of reviewing the documents in person and updating the form I-9. And we're hoping, I mean, we would like to hope that ICE is going to be flexible should there be audits concerning employers form I-9 process and recognize some flexibility with respect to some of the forms I-9 that were completed over the course of the pandemic. So if things aren't done to a T, so to speak, hopefully as long as there's an explanation offered by the employer and the employer explains the steps that were taken during that time to verify the employees and onboard them, we're hoping that ICE will be flexible with respect to any audit work during that time. So it's important, There's, you know, especially with Form I-9, We can't let it slide. We definitely need to stay on board and make sure that we follow all the compliance regulations where that's concerned. Now, you two are the experts in this field, but it seems to me that in most cases, having employees abroad is a temporary situation that's forced upon us due to COVID. And it's not as if U.S. institutions really plan or intend to have employees abroad long term. But does that really make a difference here? Well, that's a good point. Lots of people have that question, Tara. And We initially, when COVID hit and people had employees stuck abroad, working abroad, there was a lot of talk with our counterparts in other countries about, well, how long will the authorities in your jurisdiction be flexible about this? And it sort of emerged at that time. I mean, this was a long time ago. It emerged that six months was going to be the sort of the idea of it. Of course, I think at that time, people thought that the pandemic would be well past us in six months. And if you stayed working in their country remotely, longer than six months, then it was just optional on your part. But as the pandemic extended into now a year, we're not even really having those conversations so much anymore. And I think enforcement authorities in other countries don't really know what position they're going to take either. We're just hoping that generally people are understanding that there's a pandemic. But the fact of the matter is employers could be subject to 
enforcement in any country where they have an employee, even if it was for a short period of time. You know, we were using the six month benchmark because it just seemed reasonable, maybe like almost a year ago now. But at this point, the advice that we all are giving is that if you have an employee who's working remotely for this whole long period of time, the employer really is subject to the employment law of that jurisdiction where they're working. And sometimes that can be really surprising. I mean, for example, in the United States, we're all very accustomed to at-will employment, but this does not exist in really any other country in the world. The idea that you could just be fired at any time with no severance or notice is really just not a universal concept. It's a very American concept. And so when people, when employers investigate what it would be like to have, you know, to comply with employment laws in another country, they often find that it is not going to be tolerable from their perspective to have an employee in that jurisdiction and, and comply with all those requirements. And the employee could look to them for the types of severance and notice and vacation time that they are just routinely eligible for in that jurisdiction. So what we've done and you know, having the Employment Law Alliance for us as members of the network has been really powerful in this situation because we've either checked ourselves with our colleagues around the world or we've been able to tell our clients that they can just call our colleague in a different jurisdiction and find out how drastic is it to comply with the laws in your jurisdiction and do we need to make sure that we either pull this employee out, move them somewhere else, terminate the employment, or can we just say, okay, we're going to comply with the laws of this jurisdiction if that's feasible. In some cases to do that, we've learned that you would have to actually start an entity, establish an entity in that country. You might need to get some regulatory approvals. That might be simple, that might be hard to impossible. So it's really a jurisdiction by jurisdiction assessment of what you're doing and what the rules are going to be. Some employers have turned to third party employers in other jurisdictions like PEOs that we have in the United States. And that can be cost-effective if you have a lot of employees abroad. And maybe you know some employers have contracted with one third-party employer that then is the employer for their employees in a variety of jurisdictions. And then it becomes cost-effective. In general, my experience with clients has been that if you only have one employee abroad in one jurisdiction, working with a third-party employer is going to be cost-prohibitive. But again, this is really very dependent on the circumstances. And another surprise, in some cases, you might find that some U.S. laws are also going to apply to your employees abroad. And so that would be things like Title IX might apply in certain ways. You might find different laws that we find universal here, non-discrimination type laws, are also going to apply there. So it's, a, it's an interesting situation and does require some thought. And employers have to be really cautious before they end up with a long-term employee in another country. Well, Lee and Joanna, this has been a really fascinating discussion on the immigration challenges that are facing colleges and universities. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks, Tara. Thanks, Joanna. Thank you for having us. That was great. If you'd like to connect with Lee, Joanna, or any of our lawyers around the world, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. Just go to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page, or you can also sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars download white papers, get on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Stingley. Thanks so much for listening.